All right, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 23? The text for today's sermon is also in your bulletins, page 275 of the Blue Bibles, if you would like to uh, use them. Now, as a reminder, before I read, we are in the heart of the conclusion of 2 Samuel. If you were uh, with us in Sunday school today, it was called Coming Down the Home Stretch of uh, 2 Samuel. And indeed, we are coming to the end of 2 Samuel uh, with a very deliberate structure that I have reminded us of before and allow me to do so uh, once again, just because it helps again in processing where we are and what's happening here in this part of Scripture. So the end began in chapter 21. It goes to chapter 24, and there's a parallel between 21 and 24. So if you think of it this way, it's the same theme here and the same theme here. And then we move up to, if that's number one and number one, then number two and number two, that's a section we haven't looked at yet. Uh, That's on uh, David's mighty men. We'll get there next week, uh, and we'll look at it on the backside here of this. And then there's number three and number three, the very heart of the conclusion and the heart of Second Samuel is represented in these two songs or these two poems, the first of which we looked at over the last two weeks because it's very long, chapter 22, and the second of which we look at this morning, the first part of chapter 23. So having considered then for the last two weeks David's love song, of thankful praise to the Lord for delivering him throughout his life, we now turn to this second poem, this second song of his in the conclusion. This is an oracle. It is a very specific prophetic word, and if you've peeked either at your Bible or at the uh, bulletin, you'll note that it begins with this statement. Now, these are the last words of David. It's probably best for us to understand that comment that these are uh, the last public words of David, or these are the last formal, prophetic, and poetic words of David, as opposed to understanding these as, for example, deathbed words of David. Uh, But nevertheless, it's significant for us, right? When we hear that phrase, these are the last words that someone said, Uh, then immediately we kind of lean in a little bit. We pay a little bit more attention to them. We focus our listening, given the obvious gravity of the moment that exists there. So that's that's kind of the idea here. These are the last words of David. Now lean in a little bit and listen to what these words are as David structures them for us, having heard them from God. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is part of what God is doing in these words to us this morning. Verses 1 through 7 then. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, 
He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Of green grass and brown spots. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given. We thank you for this inspired word that you give to us day after day and week after week. You are the living God. You are our rock. You are here with us now. And as you spoke to and through your servant David, so you speak to your people today with these words for our instruction, that it is profitable for us today. So we pray that today we would hear, not me, but we would hear together as your people, you and your voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last two days notwithstanding, this is the time of the year when many of us enjoy nice walks around our neighborhoods. The weather is good, the temperature can be good, and you walk around and you enjoy uh, the, the blooming, the blossoming trees that are going on. Now, that's mostly past now. You enjoy the perennials that are coming up and all of the freshness of all of the colors that are out there, the, the brilliance of the colors that haven't faded uh, at all yet with the heat of summer. And if you are like me, one of the things that you also look at, at this time of year in particular, is the grass. It is a good time of the year for grass. Now, I will say this. It is a good time of the year for grass if you are a person who likes to mow the lawn. If you are a person who hates to mow the lawn, it's a very bad time of the year with respect to grass. But nevertheless, the grass is growing now. And if your neighborhood is like mine, when you walk around your neighborhood and you look at the various lawns, and really you can't help but look at them uh, to some extent, some of the houses have really great-looking grass and others not so much. Others you kind of look at and go, okay, you know, a lot of, a lot of brown spots there. Uh, a lot of weeds that are poking up through there. As David, as David concludes this public-inspired prophetic songwriting, the sweet psalmist of Israel reflects on grass, on grass and other things. You see it there at the end of verse 4, the culmination, if you will, of this oracle that is given like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's a very organic picture that is given to us. And of course, the inverse, the opposite of that picture of a kind of flourishing of the grass is given to us then in verses 6 and 7. In contrast, in contrast, worthless men, they're all like thorns. 
thorns that are going to be thrown away. And the picture there of the thorns being thrown away is that they're so sharp, they're so prickly, that you can't just reach in and grab hold of thorns because of the pain that they would inflict on you. So you get some metal, you get some tongs, you get the end of a spear, you grab hold of them and just fling it over into the fire to get rid of the thorns. And David, as he is reflecting on this, as he's giving us these words from God, he's reflecting on the, the, the worth of things, the worth of this blessing that we see in the first case and the cursing that we see in the second. And he's contrasting not only what they look like, not only the fact that one is grass and the other is thorns and thistles, but also what makes the difference between them? What's the reason for the difference? When I look at a lawn and I see one that's really nice looking and the other that's not so much, I don't only observe that that's the fact, but I want to know why. I want to know what somebody did. How did it happen that this is so nice and that this isn't so nice? So he's comparing and he's contrasting fruitfulness and bounty and delight. That's up in verses 3 and 4 with barrenness and consumption by fire and the pain that is associated with it. Now, this is, of course, a most familiar of biblical analogies, right? We come across it all throughout scriptures. Uh, We saw it in, for example, Psalm 1. Uh, which we didn't read earlier, but we sang Psalm 1 earlier in the service, where a fruitful tree is contrasted with chaff, with uh, the, the wheat being thrown up in the air and the chaff getting blown away and not worth anything. We saw a similar analogy in the words of our Lord Jesus that we read earlier, right? In those words, we saw Jesus contrasting the healthy tree and the diseased tree, and comparing and contrasting the two of those things. Now, as, as all of these analogies make clear, it's an analogy, of course, trees and grass and fruit are great things. They're gifts from God. They can be enjoyed as things from God. But as all of them make clear, we're not ultimately talking about trees and grass uh, and fruit here. We're talking about people. We're talking about people, and we're talking about what comes forth from people, image bearers of God. So the Bible is here instructing us in the blessed person and the cursed person, the righteous person and the wicked person, the worthy person and the worthless person, the 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 bearers of good fruit contrasted with the bearers of bad fruit. We're actually talking about people here. The Word of God is instructing us then not only in the contrast between the two, but again, what's behind it? Why is that the case? Why do we find that's the case in some of these people, in some things that go on in life where we can see this difference? What's the reason? What's the source? But before we get to this fundamental differentiation in humanity that is is part and parcel of the oracle, I want us to walk up to this oracle in the way that our text walks up to it so that we can understand 
the, the, the lead up to it and make sense of this. We, we get a four-part introduction to this oracle given to us in verse 1. It establishes that David is one who has experienced and who is divinely ordained in terms of his qualifications to give to us this oracle. So it's called the Oracle of David, and then these, we've got these four points that are given to us. First of all, that David is the son of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. Jesse was from the town of Bethlehem. As we looked at the story, he's not an insignificant person, but he's also not a particular prominent person from the little town of Bethlehem. So he's the son of Jesse. Second thing, this is the oracle of a man who was raised on high. So David is a man who was raised on high, and you recall the story. Samuel was told by the Lord to go to Bethlehem, to go to the house of Jesse, and from the house of Jesse would come one that Samuel would anoint as king over the people. So when he gets to the house of Jesse, and he's prepared to do this, Jesse brings forth all of his sons, one by one, named one after another. And Samuel's like, isn't there anybody else? Because it's not any of these who are before me. And finally, Jesse says, almost as an afterthought, well, I've got one more. I've got the youngest, uh, but he's nothing. He's of no account. He's out in the fields. He's shepherding out in the fields when Samuel says, bring that one to me. So David is a man who didn't start off being on high, but instead who was raised on high by the Lord, chosen by God, raised on high by the Lord. And, And that's a theme that has run through our story. It started with Hannah. Right? Hannah saw herself as insignificant in the whole scheme of what was happening in history and in Israel. She was one childless woman in the scheme of things. And by the time she gives birth to who will become Samuel for uh, the people of God, by the time that takes place, she's able to sing a song in which she praises God for having taken her from a low position and exalted her to that position. And it's the same idea with Mary, of course. Mary sings a very similar song, that she's one who was from low and then was raised by God. The third quality that is given here of uh, David is that he is the anointed of the God of Jacob. The anointed of the God of Jacob. So, from the song of Hannah that starts off 1 Samuel to the last song that we just finished, the verse just before this one that includes the line and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This story of First and Second Samuel is telling us the story of the coming and the development of the anointed one. And, and we've got another pointer to it right here. David is the anointed one. The king, the Messiah, the one chosen by God. If you you just transliterate the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. If you turn it into Greek, it's Christ. David is the one chosen by God, set apart, blessed by God, equipped for the office of king to which God had called him. And then fourth, that beautiful last phrase there in terms of introducing David. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He is a singing king. He is a worshiping king. As we saw from the psalm last week, he's a warrior king. 
He's a warrior king to be sure, but he is a warrior king who goes about his warfare with a melody to the Lord in his heart. All right, so that's the introduction. That's the introduction from our author. And this is then matched by a fourfold introduction by David himself. And as David then matches the introduction that was just given to him, that's like somebody coming up and saying, this is who's going to speak to us. David comes up and says, the words that I'm going to say to you, let me, let me match that four for four to say to you that these actually aren't my words. These actually are words that are coming from the Lord. That's what we've got in verse two. So it starts off with David saying this, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. David is saying, this is a prophetic declaration that I am giving here. David was equipped and anointed with the Spirit of God. He functions as a prophet giving to us in his songs, and in this case, in this oracle, the very Word of God. It is the same idea, for example, that we see in Isaiah as Jesus quotes this prophecy by Isaiah, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to bring good news, to speak forth good news. And that's what David is saying here as well in this section. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. And, and this inspired word of God is the idea that belongs to all of Scripture, uh, and on the front of your bulletins, I put a parallel to it from Second Peter. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what David is saying here. The words that I am speaking now are words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are the word of God being delivered from me, to me, through me, to the people of God. The next part, his word is on my tongue. His word is on my tongue. David in Psalm 19 uses these familiar words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David saying, these words of yours are words that are on my tongue. Third thing, the God of Israel has spoken. The God of Israel has spoken. God has blessed and appointed David, not merely for his own sake. God didn't just call David to say, David, I'd like to bless you. But God has anointed David, raised up David for the sake of his people, for the sake of Israel. The God of Israel has spoken. And then the last part here, the fourth part of David's own introduction here, the rock of Israel has said to me. The rock of Israel has said to me. Last week, uh, we, made, we noticed this in uh, the psalm that we were looking at last week, that the rock has the one quality that rocks actually don't have. It is a living rock. Uh, it is, so, so, the Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. And then when we compared that, for example, back to Moses' song, we saw that Moses talks about the rock bearing the people of Israel. Paul talks about the rock following the people of Israel. And here, David says, the rock speaks through me. The rock speaks to me. The rock speaks through me. The living rock speaks the living word, the life-giving word, 
the rock of salvation. The bedrock is spoken through David. So here's, that's the foundation. That's the foundation that is laid here prior to this oracle. David is the man appointed by God who has experienced that of which he speaks, and God is the source of the oracle, and his words, God's words, stand true. Here then, the oracle itself. The oracle itself. Here it is. That's the intro to it. Here's the oracle, beginning in the middle of verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's the oracle that is given there. And then, as you come down to verses 6 and 7, that blessed life is contrasted with the worthless life that we see in, represented in the thorns and the thorns being gathered up and thrown in the fire in 6 and 7. The oracle, however, observes not only the difference, not only the, the difference between green grass and thorns, that there's such a thing as green grass and great days and sunny days and morning light and thorns that are to be thrown in the fire, but, but it looks behind that and it articulates a principle. Why is this the case? Why are there some who experience this blessing, and why are there others who are like thorns that are gathered up and thrown into the fire? There's a principle. The principle is articulated there in the middle of verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, then... So that's the principle. The principle's right there. And, and if, you, if you strip the principle down a little bit, it's the idea of ruling in justice and in the fear of God. But it's not, it's not just a principle, the principle of justice and the principle of fear of God. It's a person, right? It's a person, a ruler. When a ruler rules in a godly way, blessing is the result. And conversely, when a ruler rules in a godless way, by implication, then the result is thorns, brown spots, cursing that takes place. Now, surely, if you look at a principle like this, it applies in all sorts of different situations. And we could cross-reference this. I'm not going to do that, but we could cross-reference this with many other portions of Scripture to understand this. We could see, for example, how this principle applies to parenting. Okay, so be wise in your parenting, rule in a just way under the fear of the Lord as parents, and blessing is the result of that. We can see how it applies to teachers. We can see how it applies to uh, church leaders, how it applies to political leaders or, or to business leaders or to team leaders or to project leaders, uh, to, to directors of plays and all sorts of things. We could look at this principle and say, say it very simply that when you lead in a good way, observing justice for the sake of those you are leading under the fear of the Lord, that that's a good thing and a blessed thing. And in fact, you could even go further than that. You could say the principle could be applied more generally. In fact, you could say it can be applied without the idea of ruling thrown in there at all. To just say this, if you walk in ways that are just and in the fear of the Lord, you will experience the blessing of God. 
Okay, you, could, you could strip the principle all the way down to that very basic principle. The law teaches that idea. Psalm 1 reflects that exact same idea. And Jesus teaches it as well. That's the idea that we read from Matthew. It's the other verse that I put on the front of your bulletins. I won't look at the front right now. But from Galatians, right? There's a very simple principle here. As a man sows, so also shall he reap. That's the Galatians principle. It's on the front of your bulletin. So you could strip it down all the way to those two things, uh, to, to general positions of leadership or just a general rule for life. And, and you could say that's all biblically true and faithful. But this oracle is more specific than that. It is saying something just a little bit different than that and a little bit more significant. It is spoken by David, by the king, raised on high, by the rock of Israel, the anointed one. And so what this oracle is proclaiming is that the well-being of the people, the flourishing of the people is not simply a matter of their own independent and individual choices. Now listen to that because we as Americans want to think that that's true. We want to think that it is dependent upon us, our own individual choices. That's what makes the difference between green grass and brown spots, what we do. But what the oracle is saying here is it doesn't come down just to that. It is, in fact, our blessing, our welfare, our flourishing, inseparable from their ruler, from how he rules. From how he rules. The Israelites wanted a king to fight their battles for them, to save them. Their welfare is bound up with the welfare of the king. The people stand and live in relation to their ruler, their king. The king himself stands in relationship to the people whom he is to rule with justice and to the Lord under whom he is to serve with fear. And the justice that he is to exercise as the king is not a justice that he comes up with. He's not supposed to, as the king, think, okay, this is the situation before me. What's the just thing? What am I supposed to do here as king? What kind of laws should I write? What kind of laws should I enforce? Rather, the justice of the king, of Israel's king in particular, is defined by God. It is defined by his word. It is defined by his law. So the king submits to the law of God in the fear of God for the sake of the people whom he rules. And so he rules over people justly. Now, back in Deuteronomy, there was the expectation in that giving of the law of God that there would come a time in the history of God's people that there would be a king in Israel. And Moses, through the leading and the working of the Spirit of God, gives stipulations, parameters for how that king should then govern the people, how the rule should take place. And I want you to hear this in light of what we've just read, in light of the oracle that is at the end of David's life and the key principle that is there. So here's what Deuteronomy 17 says. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, 
and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes in doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Those are the parameters. That's what God says. That's what God said long before, 500 years before David was the king. And that's what God is saying here at the end of his life as well. In these words, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, that's exactly what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, just different words. At the beginning and the end then, before him and after him, here are the words that govern leadership. Understanding then these parameters as established by God, we can then ask a question. You hear that? David hears the oracle. David hears those words. How does he assess himself? How does he then evaluate himself, look at himself in light of those words and and what they say about him as king? And how does he evaluate, if you will, his lawn? his people, the nation of Israel, as he looks at them in light of these words. Now, let me answer that question with words that are not specifically found in this chapter. Here's what I want to say. David assesses himself against this oracle from God through the eyes of faith. Okay, through the eyes of faith. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. David is under no illusions about himself or about Israel. His rule has been imperfect. It's been marred by sin. His own life is full of brown spots. His kingdom is full of brown spots and thorns and thistles. You can see it. We can see it. We don't need to rehearse them, right? You've We spent enough time in the mire of 2 Samuel to know that that is the reality. And yet, when David hears these words, he doesn't say, he doesn't respond with, woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is Israel, for we're going to be a mess. Instead, he responds with the words that we find in verse 5. He hears this and goes, for does not my house stand so with God? He hears the words and looks out and goes, after all this, my house is still standing. I can't believe it, but after all of this, my house is still there. How can that be? How can my house still be there after all of this? A New Testament answer might be because it was built on the rock. Because it was built on the rock, David. That's why your house is actually still standing. But coming back to this, this idea... David must see this absolute standard of justice that is given in this oracle and in the law of God back in Deuteronomy, and we could go back further than that as well to see that standard of justice. David has to see that standard of justice through a prism that makes him interpret it in a way that encourages him. What is he looking through? What is he looking through that helps him to be encouraged by those words that should otherwise unsettle him? And he's looking through a prism 
of the mercy and the loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord that is there. Now, I don't want to lose you here, okay? And I, so I don't want you to turn to where I'm going to turn right now. But I'm going to reference now something in Romans chapter 4. We were in Romans chapter 4 uh, over Good Friday and Easter, looking particularly at the last verse there. If you are familiar with Romans chapter 4, you will know that that is a passage in which Paul is talking much about justification by faith, about righteousness that is given to us by faith. And his primary example that he's giving there is Abraham. That Abraham is a man to whom righteousness was credited by the act of Abraham's faith. But Romans chapter 4 doesn't mention Abraham alone. Sandwiched in the middle of all of the speaking about Abraham is, in fact, words about David himself. And I want to read what Paul says about this. Here's what Paul writes. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. David knows his sin. David knows that if he added it up, if, if we're talking about wages here, that, that the equation doesn't add up. That, the, that it doesn't add up. That David should be receiving judgment from God. He should be, and his kingdom should be, part of the thorns and thistles that are thrown aside into the fire. But there's a righteousness, there's a forgiveness that exists outside of David. And this, this is how Paul then continues. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Wait, what? David is saying, wait, there's a righteousness apart from my works. There's a righteousness that stands apart from my rule as the king of Israel. Here's the words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's from Psalm 32. That's what's quoted there by Paul. If the Lord, this is David in Psalm 132, um, if the Lord should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. My house stands. David, why are you encouraged? Because his house stands. David understands that his life and his kingdom would be nothing. It would be nothing but thorns. It would be nothing but thistle or desert if the only way to attain a perfectly green yard and a perfectly blessed kingdom were for his perfectly just leadership. There must be, there must be a righteousness and a forgiveness outside of his own deserving. Because as difficult as his own life has been, and this is where David is looking out the window and at this, as difficult as his own life has been, he has experienced the blessings of God. We just read an entire psalm, okay, the one right before this, chapter 22, Psalm 18, in which David is celebrating the blessings of God in his life, all of the things that God has given to him. And not only in his own life, but Israel has been blessed in David's reign as well. If you compare 
Israel under David to Israel under the judges or under Saul. There's no comparison. You know, we look at this and go, ah, this is a mess. This is, we've, been, we've been wading through the mire. We're sick of being in here. It's better than anything that was before, way better than anything that was before in terms of the establishment of the kingdom. How is this the case? Given that the oracle says what it says, when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, then these things will be the result. Well, the answer to this is also in verse 5. How is this the case? Verse 5, the middle of the verse, here's what David says. For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. Ordered in all things and secure. The prism through which David understands the oracle is something that came, in this case, prior to the oracle, namely the covenant that God made with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, that we spent so much time in. David understands the oracle through the prism, through the lens of the covenant that God made with him. The explanation for David's personal blessing and for the national blessing is only partly to be seen in David's rule. It's to be seen in David's rule. We could see that in David's own testimony in the last psalm. But ultimately, it's not David. It's found in 2 Samuel 7, in, David, in God's covenant with David, where God says, David, you know why your house is standing? Because I said to you, you're not making me a house, I'm making you a house. That's why your house is still standing. Does not my house stand with God? David, yeah, yes, your house stands with God. Why? Because I told you I would make you a house. That's why it's up. That's why you've still got a roof over your head, because that's the reality. I gave you rest. I said I would establish your throne. I said I will raise up an offspring after you. I said I will establish his kingdom. I said my love, my steadfast love, I will not take my love from him. I said he will reign on the kingdom forever. I said I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son. In other words, God will fulfill the requirements of the oracle. God will fulfill it. David, the king, the anointed one, looks in faith to the covenant promises that God has made. And that is his confidence. That's his confidence. That's why he can say, you've made a covenant with me, ordered in all things and secure. I submit to you that without the eyes of faith, there's no way that you could have read the second half of 2 Samuel that we have read together and come out with a statement that all things are ordered and secure. You have to have some eyes of faith. You have to be looking at something else other than the experience that has been described for us by our author over the last agonizing couple of months as we've worked our way through these things. God has given him a surety. God has given him a pledge, a guarantee, an heir that is promised, an heir who will rule justly over men, who will rule in the fear of God perfectly. David, there's one coming from you, a ruler coming from you, who will fulfill this oracle perfectly. Listen to the way that the prophet Micah then describes this a couple of hundred years after David. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. David, there's somebody way older than you here that's at play. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. For as great as David was, for as much of an advancement as David was over Saul, over the judges that preceded him, David, David, was a precursor. David was a forerunner. David was a prototype for the anointed King Jesus, the ruler who comes and gathers and rules his people justly and in the fear of the Lord. That's why David looks at this thing and goes, I can't believe it. My house is still standing. The people are still standing. I'm still standing. There's a ruler coming. David is able to see an oracle through the promise of one who is coming. To be clear then in the conclusion, all in leadership positions have a responsibility to heed the oracle, to seek to rule justly and in the fear of the Lord. And all of God's people have a responsibility, whether we're in leadership or not, to walk justly in the fear of the Lord. Green grass, Good trees, fruitful flourishing, that's the promise for that. But the place of security and of joy and of blessing is found ultimately through faith in the anointed one, in Jesus who did and fulfilled absolutely what David never could. Never could. But Jesus did. Abide in him. Abide in him. You want to bring it to one other passage, one other organic passage in the New Testament? John 15. Abide in the anointed king, in the anointed son of God, and you will not be pruned. You will not be taken and cast off into the fire. But instead, Jesus says, listen, when you abide in me, I'm the ruler Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. That's that's where the fruitfulness comes. From abiding in Christ himself. And when we do that, then verse 4, he will dawn on you like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perfect kingship. There is nothing lacking. There is nothing wanting. There is no justice you have not fulfilled on our behalf. There is no fear of the Lord that you lacked in your life, but you lived as a man and you obeyed the perfect will of God. King Jesus, we exalt you. You are the King of kings. And Lord, our Lord of lords, and you have secured our salvation. To you we look in hope and in praise. In your name we pray. 
Amen.